following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Some of you are more familiar than others of you are with uh, interstate rumble strips. You know, the little those things on the side of the road. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. Good for you. Good, good for you. Rumble strips were, were actually invented in, in New Jersey uh, and first implemented in the early 50s uh, on the New Jersey uh, Pikeway. Uh, and and the, the reason given for them was they were put in place to alert inattentive drivers to potential danger. If you've ever needed them, you know, they are very effective especially if you're somebody who's maybe you're just a little tired, like you're not, you're not exhausted, you're just a little tired, not quite paying enough attention, and all of a sudden you feel that, you're like, jerk the wheel back, you're good to go, right? You've seen that there is danger on the other side of that. Hopefully you never need them, but they're good to have there when you do. We all need some of those kind of things in our faith as well. Ideally, you and I would be so overflowing with the love of Jesus and our submission to him that such safeguards would never come into play. Ideally, I'm yet to meet a person who is mature enough to be there yet, where they don't need any of those just little assists to keep them on track, to keep them alerted to the danger that they are walking into. And while we all want to, or at least should want to, grow and mature in our lives of faith, we have to ask the question, how do I do that while living in a broken flesh that very easily pulls me off the road and pulls me in the wrong direction? In other words, what guards do you and I need to keep in place to keep us living as grace-filled believers in a graceless world? Today, we're gonna look at Genesis chapter 34. And again, this is a, a dark um, and difficult passage, but in it, God is gonna show his goodness, his protection, his provision, how he gives us, how he puts in our lives safeguards to keep us on that road to being grace-filled people in a graceless world. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna read through this passage, not the entire thing, but we're, we're gonna read through this and look at this passage. Then we're gonna come back and talk about these lessons that God teaches, the guards that he gives us. So this passage starts in Genesis 33, verse 18. Let me read through 34, verse three. It says, after Jacob came from Paden Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the son of Hamor. Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. Leah's daughter, Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Okay, let's stop there. Okay, so what's, what's happened here? 
Jacob settles in, Can- in Canaan. Remember last week he'd met with his brother. His brother says, well, come with me to Seir. And he says, okay, I'll meet you there. And instead of going west to Seir, he goes south. And he sets up camp in, in Canaan. And, and it says here that he worshiped God there, right? He sets up an altar to the Lord. So he continues to worship the Lord, his God. But here's the thing. He does it in close proximity to a pagan people. This causes trouble. We've seen this cause trouble in Genesis before, haven't we? If you think back to Abram and Lot, remember the story of Lot? You remember the end of Lot's story. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah and God brings the fire down and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. But remember what got Lot into that situation? In Genesis chapter 13, Lot and and Abram separate. They'd been traveling together, but they decide, you know, we have too much too many flocks, too many herds, too many animals. We have to part ways so that we can take care of ourselves. So Lot goes one way, Abram goes the other. And in Genesis chapter 13, verse 12, it says, Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Okay, no problem, right? Let's go to the next chapter, chapter 14. In chapter 14, we get a story of these four kings led by Keterleomen who come in and they, they take captive Sodom and Gomorrah and they take all the people captive. And in chapter 14, verse 12, it says these kings attacked and abducted the people of Sodom. And then it says, also, they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions for he was living in Sodom. It's chapter 13, he's living near Sodom. Chapter 14, Lot's living in Sodom. Now we jump a few chapters ahead towards the end of of Lot's story. And God sends two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's gonna bring this judgment down upon this wicked city. And in chapter 19, verse one, it says, the two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at Sodom's gateway. Now that sounds like a fairly innocuous phrase, but what it means is that Lot wasn't just living in Sodom now. He was a, a leader in the city. He would have been known and respected. He was kind of the welcoming committee there in Sodom. So Lot goes from, well, I'm just living near the wickedness to now I'm kind of living with the wickedness to now actively participating in this city of wickedness. The proximity brought problem after problem after problem for Lot. Now Jacob's family is gonna experience this exact same problem because he sets up and he lives near these people. And his daughter, Dinah, becomes really interested in these people. She goes out, she wants to see the, the women of the area. She wants to learn about their way of life. She wants to live among them. This brings trouble. Because then we get Shechem entering the picture. Shechem, this kind of prince, maybe mayor of the city, depending on how you want to look at it. He has this interaction with Dinah. And this interaction is, is typically interpreted and even in some of our Bibles translated as an act of rape. He sees Dinah and he rapes her. In fact, even, even my translation says he saw her, he took her and raped her. But here's what we need to see in this passage. This is really important. In the Hebrew language, this passage, there's four words used 
for what happens between Shechem and Dinah. It says that Shechem saw her, seized her, lay her, and humiliated her. Okay, how's that different? Doesn't that still sound like maybe that's an act of rape? The problem is the wording is not as clear as we like to think it is in our interpretation. Could this be an act of rape? Yes, but it might not be. See, the words used here, these four Hebrew words used together are used elsewhere in the Old Testament to talk about consensual relationships between husbands and wives. It's not necessarily talking about rape. It is potential, there's a potential here that Dinah gave in to her lustful desires for Shechem, just as he had lustful desires for her. And they committed the sexual act outside of the bounds of the marriage relationship. It's possible that Dinah actually ran away with Shechem. If we look at the way that this is talked about through the rest of this passage, right? Verse three, the second half of verse three says that, that Shechem loved her and spoke tenderly to her. That doesn't usually follow an act of rape. In, if we go down to verse 19, it says that Shechem is more honorable than anyone else in the city. It, does, that, does that line up that, that this would happen and then he would be called honorable? No. If you go to verse 26, it, it, it seems like Dinah has now been living with Shechem in this time. When we get to the end of this passage, his brothers have to take her out of Shechem's house. Not to mention the fact that there is no record in here of her fighting against what has happened. Okay, and I say all of this, not to say that if your Bible says that, that Shechem raped Dinah, that it's wrong. No, that, that very well could be. What I'm saying is it's not that clear. And here's why that's important. Because if it is that clear, it's very easy to look at this passage and go, it's all about the wicked Canaanites and the righteous Israelites. But as we go through this passage, you're gonna see that's not what this chapter is about. Okay, so let's, let's go on. We'll come back to that in a minute. <clears throat> so we have this act of humiliation, which again, could be a family humiliation, right? If Dinah has committed... Uh, a sexual act with someone, not her husband, it would bring shame and humiliation upon her and her family. Okay, so this humiliation has occurred. Now we get into uh, the, the, the main section of chapter 34. <clears throat> and, and, and here we're gonna get the, the basis for our understanding of the rest of this passage. Starting in verse four, it says, um, Shechem says, get me this girl as a wife, he told his father. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with the livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. Meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamor, came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field, and when they heard about the incident, they were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping, again, that word there in the Hebrew is laying with, by laying with Jacob's daughter. And such a thing should not be done. Hamor said to Jacob's sons, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. <clears throat> Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here. Move about <clears throat> and acquire property in it. <clears throat> as we watch this, then we get Simeon and Levi, the brothers who would come back from the fields, give their answer to this request by Hamor. 
in verses 14 and 15, where it says in verse 14, we cannot do this thing, right? We can't give our sister to you in marriage. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are. So this is the condition that Simeon and Levi give to, to Hamor and his son Shechem. You can marry my daughter if you and all the men of your city are circumcised. So Hamor and Shechem go and, and over the next several verses, they talk to the people and they convince them that this is a good idea. This will serve them well as it, just as it does Shechem. And then we get the rest of the story in verse 24 through 29, where it says, all the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And all those men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were all still in pain, duh, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem. Jacob's sons came to slaughter and plunder the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in their houses. Okay, so this main action, what happens here? Well, it starts with Jacob. Hamor comes to talk to Jacob. Jacob, what's he do? What's he say? Nothing. He remains silent. This sin, however you want to view it, this sin has occurred and he remains silent. So Simeon and Levi step in as Dinah's protectors. And the brothers <clears throat> use deception, right? This wonderful family practice that we've seen throughout the, the life of Jacob. They use deception on the Canaanites. They deceive them into thinking if these men would just be circumcised, then Dinah could marry Shechem. Of course, Hamor, Shechem, all the people, they're like, okay, great, this will work out well for us. So they do this. And while the Canaanites are healing, Simeon and Levi go in, slaughter and plunder the entire city. Okay. Now, how does this then end? Well, verse 30 and 31 give us the conclusion here where it says, then, Jake, uh, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me making me odious. I love, I don't know what every translation has, but I love that my translation uses the word odious. <laughs> you making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, this is the brother's answer. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Simeon and Levi <clears throat> have destroyed the city. And now they face their father. And their father's question to them is, is, hey guys, what'd you do? This is not gonna work out well for me. His concern is they're standing before the neighboring nations and the possible retribution that they will suffer. And while it's not a direct and, and forceful rebuke of the son's actions, of their, their lies and their murders, it is something that Jacob holds on to for the rest of his life. In fact, in Genesis 49, when, when, when Jacob is dying and he's blessing his sons, 
In verses five through eight, he talks to Simeon and Levi. And he says this, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger, they kill men and on a whim, they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed for it is strong and their fury for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. So Jacob doesn't come and directly confront them about this, but he knows that what they have done is wrong. And the final words give us then the brother's response here. And it really shows their heart behind what they have done. Because what we see in their response is that they didn't really care about justice. They didn't care about making things right. They were bent on vengeance from the start. Because what do they say? They don't say, but dad, you see how hurt our sister is? Do you see the trouble our sister is in? No, they say, listen, we may have been wrong in what we did, but we're right in how we did it. That's not about justice. That's about vengeance. They looked for the opportunity and they took it when they got it. Okay, so not the most uplifting story in the biblical narrative, right? Not the happiest, like, everything's good. This is a, a, a dark story in the chapter of, of Jacob's life and in his family. <clears throat> but what do we learn from this? In this, we see, even through the darkness and the brokenness that occurs over and over again, we see three guards that help us to live not as Jacob and Simeon and Levi and Shechem and Dinah and, and, and the, the, the family of this story live, but to live out and live in God's grace in our lives. And the first guard that we see, that we draw from this story is this. If we wanna live as grace-filled people in a graceless world, keep watch of your desires. Keep watch of your desires. If we wanted to summarize this entire chapter, you want a really simple, really basic summary of this entire chapter, four words. Unchecked desires run amok. That's the entire chapter. Unchecked desires run amok. Because like I said before, this isn't a passage about the, the wicked Canaanites and the righteous Israelites. There is sin running through and through this chapter. With every paragraph and every turn, we find sinful desire. For Dinah, it was, it was acceptance. Maybe it was love. For Shechem, it was lust. For Simeon and Levi, it was revenge and, and honor. For Jacob, it was just peace and for everybody to leave him alone. All of these are common, natural desires. But throughout this story, they are unleashed. They are unleashed from any kind of godliness and any kind of desire to bring glory and honor to the Lord. And they are simply let loose to run their course, run their natural course. See, simply pursuing what we want will always lead us to graceless living, will always lead us to destruction and despair, just as it did for everyone in this story. We learned this all the way back in Genesis chapter four. Cain and Abel, remember God comes to this angry brother. And he says in, in verse seven of chapter four, he says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
God says, your desires, everything you want, everything you want will destroy you if it's simply about getting what you want. You must master over the desires in your life. That was true in Genesis 4, and it's true today. Okay, so the, the logical question is, well, how do I do that then, right? Like, that sounds great, but how do I do that? How do I rule over my desires? How do I rule over sin in my life? It's easy. Okay, it's not easy, but the answer's easy. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. The desire of the flesh are natural sinful desires. How do you overcome that? You walk by the spirit. Okay, next logical question. What is it? How do I walk by the spirit? Because it does me no good to go, I got to walk by the spirit to overcome sin. Well, I don't know how to walk by the spirit. Well, then I can't overcome sin. So we got to figure out how do we walk by the spirit, right? Okay. Walk by the spirit. How do we do that? Let me give you three, three helps today, okay? This is not exhaustive, but just let me give you three quick tips. If you're sitting here going, okay, how do I do this? How do I walk by the spirit to find the strength to overcome sin? Okay, the first is this, know God, K-N-O-W, just in case there is any doubt. Know God, right, know God. Okay, there are volumes and volumes of books written about how to know God. You could take all of those books and boil them down into this, spend time in prayer with him. I just saved you thousands of seminary dollars and time in books. You wanna know God, spend time in prayer with him. That's the only way we really know him. We can know about God through books. We can know all kinds of information, but when we sit with him and we say, God, show me, speak to me, God, hear me. When we listen, we speak, we interact with his presence in quiet prayer. That's when we get to know him. So know God, number two, know God's word. You knew that was coming, didn't you? Know God's word. This is how we distinguish natural desire from godly desire. If you have a desire in your heart, and listen, not all your desires are bad desires. God puts desires in your heart. But if you look at a desire, you're like, this is what I really want. I don't know if this is from God or this is just me being selfish. Okay, go to God's word. It's not gonna tell you that this, don't buy a car this week because that's not God's will for you. That's not what the Bible's gonna say, but it's gonna give you everything you need for godliness. It's gonna tell you, give you everything you need to make that wise choice and distinguish between selfish desire and kingdom desire. Know God, know God's word. Number three, know yourself. Man, this is huge. Know yourself. If we were all to sit back and really think about this and take some time this week, maybe write down some notes, we could all come up with the ways that our hearts are inclined to sin. Because we all have natural inclinations in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives that draw us to particular sins. We might not share them, but we might have some overlap in areas. But every single one of us, every single one of us in this room is inclined to at least one, two, three, 50 particular sins in our lives. Because of the way we've grown up, 
because of what our education was, because of relationships we've had, we are drawn to particular sins. Too many of us walk around just hoping we will overcome sin without ever acknowledging where we struggle in life. And that's like putting on a blindfold and walking through a minefield hoping you'll get to the other side. So this week, you wanna know yourself, you wanna see this? Spend time, get to know God, get to know God's word, but spend some time sitting down, really thinking about where are the areas that I struggle and what are those sins that come up over and over and over again? And when you get that list, go back to number one and two. Take those back into your time of knowing God. Take those to God's word. Ask for God to give you clarity. Ask him to give you strength. Ask him to give you victory that only he can give. We wanna walk by the spirit. We have to know God. We have to know God's word and we have to know ourselves. The question is, are we vigilant with our natural desires, the natural desires of our old nature, the natural desires of our flesh? We must keep watch over our own desires. Okay, let's move on to guard number two. It says we must accept God's judgment. Accept God's judgment. If you go back this week and you read Genesis 34, there's a really important aspect that you won't find in this chapter. Simeon and Levi, who go out and carry out this attack and wipe out this city, you know what they never do? They never go to the Lord. They never ask God to show them what to do, where to go. They never pray for wisdom. They never seek God's will. They acted swiftly and mercilessly based on their own judgment of the situation. Again, they don't want justice. They want vengeance because that's what they want. It's about their judgment. If we are to be people of grace, we will often, often find ourselves in Simeon and Levi's position where we look at a situation and we will feel that life is unfair and that we're not getting what we deserve or that those wicked people aren't getting what they deserve. This is normal. It's even understandable. In Habakkuk chapter one, Habakkuk has this same thought process. And he goes to the Lord twice in in. Habakkuk chapter one, verse two through four. He says, how long Lord must I call out for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. And then you get into verse 12 and he comes back to the Lord again. He says, are you not from eternity, Lord, my God? My holy one. You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? Habakkuk says, God, I see all this wickedness. I see all this destruction. You need to take care of it. Why are you not acting? Why are you not doing this? Because my judgment says they deserve to go down. But the gracious, 
Those living with the grace of Christ don't live according to what they see with their eyes. They live by faith in the goodness, faithfulness, provision, protection, and eternal justice of God. In the face of the unfairness of this life, and let's not pretend that there's not unfairness in this life. Now you walk around on the face of this planet for five minutes, you're like, there's some things that don't seem right here. But in the face of the unfairness of this life, we remember that our treasures, our rewards, and our victories are not in this world. Our treasures, our rewards, our victories are in heaven. And so we can accept that God may be gracious with others in a way that we don't like. God may be gracious and patient with others, even in their wickedness. And sometimes even at our expense. We can take that because we understand that what he has given us in redemption, salvation, joy, hope, purpose, eternal life, all of that far exceeds any suffering we may find in this world. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, uh, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Peter says, you're going to suffer in this life And there's not a single one of us who suffers and then looks at it and is like, this seems good. None of us like to suffer. Suffering always feels unfair in the moment. But Peter says, listen, you're gonna suffer. But don't forget how good, gracious, victorious, and strong your God is. Rest in that. Accept God's judgment by resting in him. Can we be so satisfied in God's judgment that we're okay with not feeling it at a given moment in our own lives? Ooh, I hate that question. Let me just be brutally honest with you. I hate that question. Do I trust God's judgment enough to trust it even when I don't feel it? We accept God's judgment. Okay, last one. The third guard. This one goes hand in hand with accepting God's judgment. We see the need to be patient in faithfulness. Be patient in faithfulness. God is God and we are not. Amen? God is God and we are not. That means that we trust his timing while remaining faithfully obedient to his commands. Patient faithfulness requires that we accept God's judgment, right? I have to accept that what God says is good and best. That gives me the strength to be patient and to faithfully continue serving him. And at the same time, when I'm faithfully patient in serving him, it helps me to accept his judgment all the more, right? So you get this this kind of cyclical effect here that these two feed off of each other. To live as gracious messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must always be willing to set aside our perspectives so that we can accept the timetable of God's protection and God's provision. All right, here's another point where Simeon and Levi forgot this. 
right? They took the fight into their own hands. And what's worse, they weaponized the symbol of God's promise to his people. They took circumcision, this beautiful picture of God's love, God's grace, God's faithfulness, and they used it as a weapon. We are to be a people of God's grace. And as such, our faith in the Lord must never be wielded as a blunt object of war, but as a balm of healing for the brokenness in our own lives and the lives of those around us. In that, things will rarely ever move at a pace that we find optimal or that we like. But our job is not to worry about the pace of God's kingdom. Our job is to continue to be faithful day in, day out. Paul's prayer for the the church in Colossae, in Colossians 1, verse 10, 11, he says, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And part of how we do that, he says in verse 11, is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Endurance and patience. Walk worthy of the Lord. Stay strong, stay faithful, be patient because it's not about your perspective. It's not about how effective you think this work is. It's a question of, are you doing what God has called you to do and are you faithful? And will you be patient and waiting to see what God is going to do? This is why we faithfully surrender to God's presence in our lives with times of prayer, with times of scripture reading, with quiet times with him, even though our schedules are packed full and we don't think we can fit another five minutes in. This is why we faithfully serve our neighbors even when they show no interest in us whatsoever. This is why we faithfully offer forgiveness even when the pain of betrayal still sits heavy in our hearts and our minds. This is why we faithfully love our spouses even if they have failed us. This is why we faithfully display the grace of Jesus again and again and again because he has shown us grace again and again and again. It's not about us getting what we think we want, what we think we deserve. It's about recognizing God's love poured out on us through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ as he was born in a manger to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, to rise victoriously and deliver us completely. That has nothing to do with what you and I think is right, with what you and I think fits our timeline. Our patient faithfulness won't move people or situations along at the pace that we want. But again, that's never the point. The point is that we are to be faithful in how we love others with the truth and be patient in allowing our sovereign God to handle the results. Do we trust God's sovereignty enough to faithfully serve him with patient endurance. To be people who live in and reflect out the grace of God, we must be ready to keep watch of our desires, to accept God's judgment, and to be patient in faithfulness. But again, we always have to remember that it is impossible to do this by our own strength, our own determination, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, It can only be done when we know and grasp and fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
when we come to terms with the wretched hopelessness and helplessness of the best that we have to offer, when we come to terms with the glory of God's love, grace, and mercy bestowed through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign, when we come to terms with the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, transforming us, and strengthening us for the work that God has set before us, when we come to terms with the fact that the only reasonable response to all of this is to set aside the desires of our flesh, to surrender, to submit, and to obey every call and every command of our God and King. Then we can live gracious and God-honoring lives that give glory to him. We can live lives of joy and peace and hope and purpose because we are simply reflecting the light of Christ and the power of salvation to those who are still walking in darkness without him. Church family, may we know Christ. May we make him known as we live as grace-filled people in a graceless world, proclaiming at every turn, with every conversation, and in every moment, the glory salvation in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of our God. Let's pray together. Father God, you are so good. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the ways that you show us your goodness and your love, and your grace, and your mercy, and your provision, and your protection, and all of these amazing things, even in the midst of the brokenness of your people, the sin and the failure of your people. Lord, we thank you for that reminder, because, Father, I know that for me, as a broken, sinful person, it would be very defeating to think you're only good when I've been good. And so we thank you for passages like this, as difficult as they are and as dark as they are, that that darkness serves to prove your glory to be even brighter than our human eyes and hearts and minds could, could even begin to imagine. And Lord, as we see the glory of who you are, as we see the brightness of your light shine, may we desire to draw near to you all the more. May we be faithful in pursuing you and growing, maturing in our faith, in our walk with you. We know that sometimes that's gonna be easy. There's gonna be days where it just feels right. There's gonna be days where we need to step back. We need to look at these, these guards, these truths, to get us back on track. (laughs) And Lord, we're so grateful that when we've been off track, you still welcome us back. You pick us up. You dust us off. You continue to walk with us. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. 
If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.